remind the believers to submit to the government and to its officers. They should be obedient always, ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarrelling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Saviour revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Praise God for that. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth, a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. I am planning to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. As soon as one of them arrives, do your best to meet me at Nicolopolis, for I have decided to stay there for the winter. Do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos with their trip. See that they are given everything they need. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Everybody here sends greetings. Please give my greetings to the believers, all who love us. May God's grace be with you all. Amen. Thanks, Neil. As you read the first verse, uh, be subject to the government and obey them. Yesterday, Nicole and I caught up with some friends via via Skype in England. And over there, they just restarted church services and they're not allowed to sing in church. It's against the rules and they've all got to wear masks in church and social distance. And uh, I said, almost said to, to Guy, oh, just, just ignore the rules, Guy, and sing anyway. Glad I didn't. I've <laughs> been directly disobeying the words of, of the Bible. Hey. Um, anyway. So, one of my favorite things to do each day is to sit with a cup of tea in the morning and read the paper. Although it doesn't seem to happen very much anymore, does it? We're always in such a rush. But anyway, I, I do enjoy sitting there, reading about what's going on around the world and seeing what's making people tick. It's been an interesting week, hasn't it, with Donald Trump and the coronavirus and lots of interesting things happening in the world. As I prepared for the sermon today, uh, some of the big picture ideas 
that have been talked about in our society in recent years came across my mind. Things like fear around global warming, the connected economic policies, worries about coronavirus and recession, identities, uh, issues to do with identity and, and gender fluidity, concerns about the rise of non-democratic countries like China, issues to do with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of movement. There are plenty of people out there that are passionately pursuing goals connecting to these big picture ideas, aren't there? And often people are in conflict over what our specific goals should be for these big picture ideas. We need to safeguard freedom of speech, but no, we need to stop hate speech. We need to enact policies to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. No, we we need to ensure people in the third world have access to electricity and so on. So despite the variety of these topics and the variety of views, there is something that links everyone that's got ideas about these views, about these issues. Everyone who's got ideas about these issues is passionate about the issue. And they have the desire to change the world and to make it better. So there are these big picture ideas out there and a lot of people want to change the world. And sometimes they want to change the world diametrically opposite. And yet, we're all connected by this desire to change the world and to make the world better. That's a common experience to most people. I'm sure that most people here want to see the world change for the better. We all have that desire to leave a mark and change the world. We can look around the world and see a world of problems that isn't perfect. Plenty of people go hungry. Plenty of people without a place to live. It's a world where people can't make ends meet. People can't pay the bills. There are the haves, the have-nots. There are leaders and people of authority that are corrupt and selfish. There's crime, there's violence. People aren't always safe from abuse or violence. And not all people are free to choose their beliefs, choose to speak their opinions. It's a world, isn't it, with obvious problems. And it's a very human desire to want to fix these problems, to make certain aspects of the world better. I think I've chatted about this guy before, Vladimir Ilyich Uyanov. He was a man who looked around, saw problems in the world and in his country, and he wanted to make a difference. In fact, he dedicated his life to be an agent of change. He ended up having a big influence in the whole world. He lived about 100 years ago and he developed a three-word slogan that captured this desire to change the world. Bread, peace, land. Bread represented his desire to help people in poverty get enough food because when he lived there was actually a real shortage of food for people. People were hungry. They didn't have enough to eat. He wanted to change that. Peace. That was all about his desire to stop the carnage of World War I. His country was suffering hugely because of the war, and he strongly advocated that his country should withdraw from the war. And land, that represented his hope to give land to the poorest people in his society, people who were landless and were without. Good aspirations, aren't they? Bread, peace and land. End poverty, end war, end dispossession. Well, Vladimir Ilyich Yulinov made it his mission to work towards these goals. And in 1917, he got the chance. 
He led and won the revolution in Russia and overthrew the government there. Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov's other name was Vladimir Lenin. And a quick glance at the pages of any modern history book shows that the early, early 20th century Russia didn't end up to be this utopian paradise that Lenin dreamt of. So despite Lenin's idealism, or maybe because of it, the society and the world that he created wasn't any better. Actually, it was a whole lot worse. Lenin ordered and oversaw the murder of thousands of people, of political opponents, of priests, of monks, of nuns, all in the quest for this better society. He became, uh, his country became a land of secret police who dragged people off to prison for thought crimes, for disagreeing with the government. And where people were dispossessed of their land and possessions as well, so that their wealth could be redistributed. You had something, you'd lose it, so it could be given to someone else. There wasn't freedom of the press, there wasn't freedom of religion, there wasn't freedom to travel. Something went very wrong, didn't it? Things often seem to go wrong when people want to change the world. Not always, but often. Sometimes people work towards change that makes the world better. But often, the change they bring about doesn't make the world better. Often things get worse. This doesn't mean, of course, that wanting to make the world a better place is a bad thing. Obviously, that's ridiculous. We should all want to make the world better. It's an admirable quality to look around and ask, what's wrong in the world and how can I make it better? The Bible passage we read in Titus talks about making the world a better place. In verse 8 of chapter 3, those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. God created a really good universe, didn't he? In Genesis 1.31, right at the beginning of the Bible, we can read about this. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Throughout the Old Testament, we're shown a picture of God caring for people, caring about their welfare, especially those who are weak and vulnerable. In Exodus 2, in the Old Testament, God made a number of commands about trying to create a good society with words like these. Do not mistreat or oppress the foreigner. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Jesus also, later in the Bible, spoke about caring for people and making the world better, calling his followers to feed the hungry, to give to the thirsty, to welcome strangers, to clothe the poor, to visit those in prison. So not only is wanting to make the world better an almost universal human characteristic, it's actually also our calling from God. In fact, I think God probably has put that desire deep within us. From the dawn of creation, we can see that God's heart is about a good creation, a good world. So perhaps this innate desire in all of us to make the world good is part of being created in God's image. But if it's a God-given desire, why is it that so many people who set out to create a better world end up creating a society that is worse and they make the world worse? So Titus 3 has something to say about doing good in the world and I think it's helpful to see how differently the Bible speaks about being an agent of change compared with how we naturally think about changing the world. 
Humans tend to dream about change by looking at the end product. For example, we see a problem with poverty, with huge gaps and inequalities in wealth, and we think, that's not fair. It's not fair that some people are so rich and others are so poor. And then we move with one leap to imagine a society where everyone has an equal share of wealth. And that vision becomes our guiding light. That goal becomes supremely important, more important than how we get there. The end becomes more important than the means. We keep our our eyes focused on that end product and we overlook what we're doing to get there. That's how we become like Vladimir Lenin or any other great tyrant in history. The Bible, on the other hand, talks about a completely different approach to changing the world. It could not be more different than our natural human approach. According to Titus, changing the world begins with Jesus. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Saving the world, making the world a better place, begins with Jesus. John 3.17 echoes this idea when it says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The biggest problem in the world is evil and sin. The amount of hurt and damage we can do to each other is immense. Jesus overcomes this. He overcomes evil and sin. He heals hurt. He heals damage. It's good that you chose Amazing Grace to sing because I'm going to tell the story of John Newton, a Christian man who lived 300 years ago. He was an amazing man. But his adult life didn't begin too well. As a young man, he worked on a slave ship. He was in it for the money, and he was ruthless. He subjected slaves to the whip, to thumbscrews, to all manner of torture to keep them in line in his ships. Twice in in 1748, he prayed for God's intervention in his life, though. The first time, his ship was in a storm, and it looked like it was going to sink. He prayed that the ship would come safely through, and it did. The second time, he became very ill with a high fever and he thought he was going to die. Again, he called out to God in prayer and he came safely through his illness. Later, he said that these two prayers were the turning point in his life, the beginning of a conversion. From that point on, he began to change. The transformation of John Newton had begun. John Newton, like the rest of us, needed saving. The sin and evil in his life was overwhelming, clearly overwhelming. The things he did created such misery and pain. Now, I might not have done the things John Newton did, but I know I've done some pretty hurtful things in my life. I've done things that have caused pain to other people, things that I'm ashamed of. Not to the same scale as John Newton, of course, but nonetheless, there are things that I'm ashamed of, and I'm guessing it's the same for each one of you too. Titus 3 says that everything begins by Jesus saving us. When the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. So this is our first job. If we want to change the world for the better, we need to let God change us through Jesus. It's a mystery what happens. But when people come to faith in Jesus, they start to change. I think most of you know that. 
Most of you have felt that. God changes the person of faith. Jesus said something about this, didn't he? He said, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. The tree branches sway, so you know it's windy. It's the same when people come to faith. They move. They change. You may not be able to understand it or explain it, but it always happens. Titus 3, 5-7 says it. God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might be heirs having the hope of eternal life. The Holy Spirit brings rebirth and renewal to a person when Jesus Christ saves us. We change when Jesus saves us. I'm reminded of that passage in the Old Testament when I read Titus 3, Ezekiel 36, which speaks about this renewal that changes a person. In Ezekiel 36, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to obey my laws. Changing the world starts with Jesus who saves us and changes us. A follower of Jesus is different because the Holy Spirit renews and regenerates our hearts. John Newton had the turning point in his life in 1748. He didn't change immediately. He continued to work on the slave ship initially. He continued to be a ruthless businessman and a slave trader. But the change had begun. And by 1754, he had made a big decision to upend his whole life and change career. In 1754, he left sailing. He left the slave trade entirely and began walking along a long road to finding God's real calling for his life. And ten years later, after having been knocked back seven times, he was ordained and became an Anglican priest. He was different. He was changed by God. No longer was he whipping and chaining and transporting humans across the oceans. Force had been transformed into gentleness. Greed had changed into altruism. Groans had been replaced with song for him. John Newton is perhaps most famous today for the music he wrote, including Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I've already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. The Holy Spirit changed John Newton. Titus 3 verse 7 talks about this change in terms of adoption. According to Titus 3, we become heirs children of God through Jesus. Adoption is a really beautiful image, isn't it? It describes a relationship of love and of care. It also describes a relationship of function, though. In the ancient world and the Middle Ages and up to very recently, in fact, being a son had implications for what a boy became, what job he did later as a man. You're a baker's son, you become a baker. You're a fisherman's son, you become a fisherman. You're a farmer's son, you become a farmer. 
So if we're adopted as a child of God, our lives should become like the life of the Son of God. That's a life where there's perfect obedience to God the Father, a life of loving God with our whole hearts, a life of loving our neighbours, a life of giving, of caring, supporting and teaching, of prayer and patience, and even one where we embrace suffering. That's a life with some very significant differences from the sort of life that our society tells us to live. But it's a life that will happen if we're adopted as God's children through Jesus. And as we look at the Son of God, we will change to become more and more like him. And as we change, we'll begin to look more and more different than the world around us. That's inevitable. That's what Titus 3, 1-2 is talking about. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, to always be gentle to everyone. A few years back when, when the same-sex marriage debate was happening in Australia, I remember watching a news clip in an online paper about a small group of Catholic university students who set up a small store with banners and pamphlets where they were arguing against same-sex marriage. And whatever you think about the issue, it's not relevant for the story here. But within a few minutes of setting up their stall, hundreds of protesting students appeared with megaphones and loud shouts. They shouted things like, and it was all caught online, go F yourself and go F Jesus. F off bigots. I wish I could kick you in the effing face. Not only was there shouting, there was kicking, there was pushing. Hummus and other foods were thrown all over the students all over the Catholic students, and that went on for a number of hours. And the Catholic students who received the abuse never fought back. They patiently endured all that abuse. When we're changed by God, we look different than the world around us. Those Catholic students certainly looked different than the world around them. Greed, pride, hate, abuse, these are the things that a world without God displays. Charity, humility, love, encouragement. These are the things that a world with God displays. Christians and Christian communities should display when we let God change us. So if as Christians we're not looking like that, if we're not looking different, if we're not displaying the love of Jesus, then we need need to pause, repent and ask why that is. We need to ask what we need to work on as individuals, and as a community. Jesus talked about this, didn't he? He said, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Take out the plank from your eye if it causes you to sin. When we start doing that, we become that beacon of light that Jesus spoke about. You are the light of the world. A town that is built on a hill cannot be hidden. And it's precisely because the shining light can't be hidden that followers of Jesus change the world. Because when people see love and gentleness and purity, they're drawn to it. They want to understand it. They want to be part of it. Have you ever been asked a question about your actions and behavior when they've been consistently honorable and good? I got asked about that one day by a colleague at work. It was a very busy day, and we had yet another meeting to go to. And meetings are never worthwhile, by the way. (laughs) Very rarely, anyway. 
Anyway, so I was very busy, and there was just another meeting to go to. And we were rushing, running late, and I smiled and said, oh, crumbs, not another meeting. So it's just a small thing as we rushed down the hall. And my colleague stopped and asked, I've never heard you swear. You never seem to get angry and lose it. Don't you swear? <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't reply with anything particular articulate than, no, I, I don't, I try not to. <laughs> but I missed an opportunity, didn't I? That would have been the perfect time to share something about my faith. I could have said, no, I try not to get angry. I try not to swear because I don't think it's godly to do that. And I try to base my life on what I think Jesus wants me to do. But I, I didn't say that. I could have. I should have. Maybe next time I'll be more ready. But the point is, that's actually how God calls us to change the world. One person at a time, starting with ourselves, and then the person we come in contact with. If we're living like Jesus calls us to live, we'll do good in the world and we'll end up drawing other people to Jesus. And there's going to be this flow-on effect like dominoes and the good news of Jesus spreads and the love of Jesus spreads. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians that's beautiful in its description of this. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of God everywhere. Titus 3 puts it more simply. I want you to stress these things about Jesus so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So I'll finish now with the final part of John Newton's story. So after meeting the living God and leaving the slave trade, he served for a number of years as a minister for the church in the village of Olney. This is the building for the church in Olney. In 2004, Nicole and I were driving through the English countryside and we drove through the town of Olney, knowing nothing about it. But it was such a pretty town, we decided to stop and photograph the church building there. Years later, I found out that that church building, through a TV program, I found out that that church building was where John Newton served as a priest. And it was here that he preached and mentored a young man called William Wilberforce. So after becoming a Christian, John Newton wasn't active in the slave trade, but he wasn't active in stopping the slave trade either. He didn't do anything to try to stop it. Instead, he was involved simply in preaching about Jesus. And in his work, he brought Jesus to the man who was actually responsible for ending the slave trade. Because his parishioner, William Wilberforce, became Prime Minister of England. And as Prime Minister, William Wilberforce worked tirelessly to end slavery. And his story, which I think you might have seen, it's in the movie Amazing Grace. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Well worth it. When we look to Jesus and we let him change us, we change the world like John Newton did. God's way for us to change the world is actually not for us to go out and change everyone else, but to change ourselves first. If we don't do it God's way, we come to the world with our own agenda, then we run the risk of becoming another Lenin. So this week, go out and pray that God continues to transform your heart transform you into the son or daughter that you're meant to be. And don't worry about how you're going to change the world. 
If you let God transform you, you will transform the world. Amen.